just want, do you just wander around uh, the junction of School Lane and Wilmslow Road aimlessly on a regular basis, Rory? Ed had been to the dentist. Is Turns out he, he's got teeth. Has he got enough teeth to warrant a trip to the dentist? He's quite it? toothy. Is he, is, not, is he not taking up space at the dentist that uh, could be better used by somebody whose teeth are uh, no, so larger or more problematic? So because he's under five, as you know, Steve, going to the dentist is free for him. Correct. Uh, and basically, I think the dentist likes to get, get them in young so that they, they get used to the dentist. Uh, and I think Kate sees it as a free activity, basically. <laughs> well, it kills off a couple of hours. Just keeps you busy for... No, we, we had a nice day yesterday. We went to the Whitworth Art Museum. Oh, very nice, we yes. Pl- we played with clay, uh, which I now have all over my jeans. And then we went to the dentist, and I, I had a nice time, to be honest. At the dentist, there were some blocks at the dentist. Ed had a word at the time. You are not on your mic. Can you not hear me? I can hear you, but it's not recorded. I don't need to put on camera. You can't really hear me. We- yeah. Oh, sorry. I this this might develop into pre-show banter, but I'm not sure we're there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're working. To, we're working towards it. Yeah. Uh, there were reports that you were bumbling around that area. Is that bumbling? Would you describe your I, movements that, as bumbling? At that point, as I dropped Ed's coat on the floor, I probably was bumbling a little bit. Yeah. Dropped his coat on the floor. Did you know he had? No. A very kindly woman said so I was walking along School Lane in Didsbury. Bumbling. And a very kindly woman shouted at me from the car, from a car mm. to say I'd dropped a coat and a, a gentleman or a, another woman I can't remember I can't remember actually brought the coat to me very very people are very nice when you got a, a You'd child. be a rubbish witness wouldn't you But at the same time Stephen Wyeth was driving past windows down music blaring two pack <laughs> two pack Yeah that kind of thing um yeah. and in his low rider shouting at me for the second time that day which is unusually yobbish behaviour for Didsbury Village well because the first time I'd seen him and shouted at him I'd parked up not far away from where I'd seen him so I thought I'll hover and, and say hello properly to Rory yeah. and I sort of saw him weaving his way along the road and then he happy. ducked into a coffee shop and I thought that well, was the dentist already must have was, that, was there a dentist was the right dentist. there next to his yeah. is there alright oh, that explains it Costa that's clearly not a dentist is no it? the dentist is opposite Costa oh so Katie and I went about what we were in Didsbury for mm-hmm. to do some shopping, came back out again, and Rory had sort of magically reappeared at the point where we'd seen him disappear. <laughs> you so say I magically reappeared, was, I, I say left the so dentist. So I thought there yeah. was some kind of like, you know, time portal mm. there that Rory had wandered into like and back out the other side yeah, of. Yeah. So once again, I was stood on the, on the side of the road thinking, oh, well, Rory will get here soon, but then... There was some fiasco over a coat. An old woman appeared to stop Rory in the street just so she could look at Ed. I've had enough of this. I don't remember that. Did that happen? I I felt that's what was happening when I finally gave up and thought, I'm just going to get back in the car and drive home. There's only so long I can can loiter around on the side of the road for. I don't don't remember being accosted by an old woman. That's very odd. But then the the dentist had been an emotional rollercoaster, so maybe I was just still trying to process that. Can you pass me a bag of Smarties? A box of Smarties. A box of they're, boxes. they're minis. They're very you. tight. You could choke. They're tiny. So be careful. Uh, they're yeah. boxes and they come with questions on the back. Thank you very oh, much. Outstanding. Uh, what H do you do in the triple jump? Hop. There you go. What K is a county in the United Kingdom? Kent. What Q is a line of people? A, a Q. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Uh, what V looks after sick animals? A veterinarian. What W can a dog do with its tail? <laughs> Wag. <laughs> She's genuinely proud of herself for answering these questions. This is like blockbusters. It's brilliant. What B performs in ballets? Are we stumped? Ballet dancer. Ballerina. Yeah. I presume. And what G is a biscuit in the shape of a person? Gingerbread man. There you go. 
I was going to say Garibaldi, I thought, no, no. This no. is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four remedial friends talk football <laughs> over food. The food is food for a four-year-old. A recent visit from Gemma's niece prompted some over-purchasing by me. So who's up for some Vimto and Smarties? Well, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all over that Vimto. This is dangerous right? stuff. Many Smarties in his mouth. They're tiny Smarties. We need to explain Vimto to our international audience, mm. don't we? Uh, Vimto is a drink, a fruit drink, which is made in Manchester and one of Manchester's most famous exports to the extent that I think that there is a Vimto Square, isn't there, in Manchester, is which, which uh, very much reflects on its significance to the city. Blackcurrant so, uh, flavouring. Mm. Uh, more than blackcurrant. It's berries, generally, isn't it? berries. It is low-calorie mixed fruit juice drink Fruit juice drink made with the delicious secret Vimto flavour. Am I having deja vu or have we not done this for no, our international this. audience before? No. I must have done it elsewhere then. Uh, we might have spoken about Vimto briefly. Are you a, bra- are you a brand ambassador? <laughs> I, I, I'm willing to be so if there is a lifetime supply of Vimto coming in my direction. Uh, Vimto can also be made into an alcoholic drink that is preceded by the word cheeky. Oh. Joining me, Hugh Ferris. Ah, Stephen Wyeth, dressing smart with a new gilet that he received for his birthday. Rory Smith, getting older but still dressing the same. And Andy Hinchcliffe, still 50 but dressing 15. Uh, get in touch with the podcast via at setpiecemenu on Twitter, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Um, Matt Newman got in touch following the underwhelming transfer deadline day, uh, which then, of course, prompted our pod from a couple of weeks ago. He says this... I'm sure you have a, a list as sizable as Chinch's super dry collection of topics for future pods. But the departure of Marwan Fellaini from these shores got me thinking. Has there ever been a player less suited to the history, culture in eth- and ethos of a club? As a United fan raised on gigs, King Eric and the wonder that was Jesper Olsen's left peg, the arrival of Fellaini always stuck in the attack, attack, attack craw. The events of his signing always smacked of a man, Moyes, wandering around a nightclub trying it on with everyone, but at ten minutes before lights up having to settle for his fullback option. And I could understand that. However, the increasingly familiar side of his colossal barnet coming on with 15 minutes to go and the fullbacks launching it towards his massive noggin made a big part of me die inside. But is he the most acute example of this? Did Andy Carroll's arrival at Liverpool have a similar impact on their fans? I'm sure there are more, maybe from mid-90s Everton in the left-back department. Hmm. Anyway, love the pod, and you make at least one of my journeys per week to Milton Keynes more bearable, but then again, so would syphilis. That's uh, oh my word, Matt Newman, who's, who knows too much about We're podcasting syphilis. syphilis. Um, no, we're the opposite. We're the cure. We're the antidote. Oh, thank God. We're penicillin? Uh, so uh, do, do send we're us... Podcasting, <laughs> podcasting penicillin. <laughs> alliterate, and as we know, alliteration that, is... That's key. our banner quote. Um, if you'd like to send us your ideas to... Setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Does the team have any ideas of, of some ill-fitting purchases for that club's philosophy? Dennis Bergkamp and Arsenal. Oh, in a positive sense. Mm. Turn the corner for mm. Arsenal into a new generation of exciting attacks. People football. forget about how boring... I mean, I don't want to offend Wrighty, who's a listener, but people forget how boring Arsenal were and how unusual that, um, that signing was. Uh, Julian Faubert and Real Madrid... From from on a free f- no they, they loan from him. West Ham no oh right okay they, they uh, and anyone that AC Milan signed between the years of two thousand and nine and two thousand and seventeen basically <laughs> well that's, is, is that not a continuing transfer policy or or have we are we finally happy that M- Milan have turned the corner well with Piontek and and Pratetto, I think we we hope that they are that they are coming back to what they were but they've had some they've had some bad players yeah hope has been a bit of a feature of Milan's transfer policy yeah. over the last decade so yeah maybe maybe give them an opportunity how about Boyan Kirkic to Stoke oh yeah in the same Bergkamp yeah. mould yeah Without ever ha- having the same impact, of course. Are well, you saying that Bojan Kirkic didn't have the same impact at Stoke that Dennis Bergkamp did at Arsenal? It's a bold claim. 
But if he's going to if he's going to have that sort of impact, he probably needs to get on with it. Fabrizio Ravanelli and Middlesbrough in the same. Is that, to be fair, there's quite Giannino a lot like that. Well, yeah. Janino. Yeah. yeah. Chinch, any ideas or did you? No, not I'm just enjoying. The text I'm just enjoying the conversation. The, with the Fellaini, was he signed because David Moyes knew him and could sign him? <laughs> no, I'm not being, I'm not being funny. It. Did he sign him? Yeah, but if that was the policy, that reason? he could have signed him a fortnight earlier for a lot less money. True, he could have done that. I think. I think Fellaini. Who? Fellaini, Marouane, Marouane Fellaini. So it's not Fellaini. Fellaini. I don't know what it is. You say Fellaini. I say Fellaini. I say Fellaini. Let's sell him to China. He's gone now. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I think he's slightly, harshly treated. Really? Yeah. Why? Because I'm a natural contrarian, and also I've interviewed him, so I feel a bond is with him. Is that a religious sect? Yes. Go on. Carry on. <laughs> so defend him. De- defend him. Best chest control in the you history of the game. You could defend him because he'd elbow you in the face. <laughs> exactly. Fellaini is. A, a good player to have around because with he is very golf course. <laughs> very difficult to deal with for, for other teams. I also think his versatility has been partly whatever the opposite of an asset is. I think he's never been able to... He's been used in lots of different roles because he can do lots of different things. Can he I think though, he's or not, is he bad in most positions? I think he's not a bad player, Aaron Fellaini. What, what is he? He is a... I would say he's a number six who can score goals. Really? In a two... A sort of defensive midfielder. He's not your playmaker, obviously. Yeah. But I just think I think that the, the kind of the Fellaini hatred became a thing that everyone did, without necessarily thinking. Actually, do you know what? He's he's been around for ten years in the Premier League. He scored X number of goals. Played for Everton and Man United. He's not a bad player. He's not maybe. I get why the United fans got annoyed with him, and he he wasn't someone to build the team around. But I I think he maybe was slightly underappreciated. But he suited Everton clearly far more than yeah. he ever suited United. Yeah. And it wasn't and it was more that he epitomised where United had gone so badly wrong following yeah. the end of the Sir Alex Ferguson reign. It wasn't so much that Fellaini was entirely to blame on his own, but it was just there was an incredibly large, big haired man so he was like at the which big the red vitriol could be, yeah, could he, be directed. Yeah. Paul Trinchesti in Liverpool. Yes, I, that was what I thought about that one. But that was more Paul Konchesky's mum and Liverpool. No, it was more that Paul Konchesky was really bad and Liverpool have, have a tradition of not having really bad players. <laughs> yeah, but his, his mum didn't really sort of buy into, no. the, uh, no. into the whole sort of ethos of, of what it was to be a Liverpool footballer. The whole business. Yeah, was yeah. it mum? Yeah, his mum had a bit of a sort of like a, a spat with, mm. or, or she, she had a pop at Liverpool supporters on social media about their... Attitude towards her son, but and that's fair enough. It, it, must, okay. it must be it must be quite hurtful if everyone's booing your son. Yeah, it just didn't really make the situation any better for Paul. No, but like when Hugh it. comes to my house and boos Ed, I <laughs> yeah. feel very I feel very hurt. But you can boo Ed if if, if he's not so performing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Booing Ed is a matter between you and I, Rory, and it shall remain so. <laughs> uh, so send us your ideas if you have any ill-fitting purchases, even if Marouane Fellaini isn't one. But finally, um, before we is move it, on... Is it a Select 11 in the making? It that, might be a Select 11 in the making if we get 11 players, although the one player we currently had suggested has been talked down by one of the group. Paulinho Barcelona. Uh, an ill-fitting purchase was when I went for the medium super dry hoodie. Should have gone for large. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, Frederick Huyer, an Arsenal fan from Huyer! Norway. Exactly. Uh, although that will become uh, crucial in just a moment. Sent us a very thorough 
and impressive email, which I would delve into now if it weren't for the fact that he criticised my pronunciation of a couple of footballers. Uh, we both think it's important, Frederick. We'll just have to agree to disagree, OK? Which ones? Above all, it's one of the most comprehensive pieces of correspondence we've ever had, so thank you very much indeed, Frederick. Um, he's an Arsenal fan, so he's on, on me for, for Santi Cathola and for... Oh, no, he's from Norway, so I said... Uh, we, we said Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and he had to rewind because he didn't understand what we'd said because we didn't say Ulla. Oh, is it Erla? It's Erla. Erla doing a Solskjaer. But um, he's been anxious on account of Why that. Why has Erla not corrected us as a nation at some point over the course of the last 20 years on that? You'd have thought he'd have mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Might have come up. Maybe, maybe he, he prefers Ole. He, he may well do. I'm a big believer in that you... It's okay to an- to anglicise names in the same way as the Spanish sp- Spanish Spanishicised names and stuff. It doesn't matter. The point of language is to, is to communicate, and it's I don't think it's like cultural imperialism or colonialist disrespect to be like. Do you know what we say in 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 English? We say that looks like Cazola. So that I want you to know the point of language is that I want you to know who I'm talking about. And you will understand Cazorla. You don't need to say Cazorla. Would you roll the R, maybe? Yeah, I think you'd, you'd put a little bit of inflection of the R. Who's got the time? But all I would say to that is that in an effort to be um, good, we shouldn't give up. We shouldn't That's true. do 0% when we can get to 75%. Oh, no, no. And I think it's important not to like mispronounce names completely. And, and some of it is cultural imperialism, frankly. And I ride, rail against that. And I oh, as we all do. I do everything that I can as a broadcaster to try and rail against that public. A lot of Everton fans mispronounce my name. Should be Hinchcliffe. They were calling me back. <laughs> completely ridiculous. That's not my name. Right, we must crack on, everybody. Uh, Chinch has an appointment in Manchester, which may well relate to what he just said that he gets called. Um, Steve has an appointment in London. Rory has an appointment with some dog poo in a plastic bag, so we must get on with this. Now, last week, uh, we included an email from a listener called Aaron Brenner that praised Chinch. You'll wow. remember that. This was the one. Um, well, after that one step back, here are two steps forward uh, with a topic suggestion. Uh, dear Set Piece Menu, there's been much discussion in various media recently about the failure of managers to motivate their players. Most obviously, Jose Mourinho has been pilloried for the lacklustre effort of his players. Criticism only magnified by the success of one Ola Gunnar Solskjaer in inspiring the same group of players to a nice. long, unbeaten run. Nice. Everton fan <laughs> like Barry, Barry Davis, Davis is in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Everton fans have been critical of Marco Silva after insipid performances, and he's fired back saying, it's up to the players to motivate themselves. Maurizio Sarri complained about how hard it is to motivate, motivate Chelsea players and openly criticised them as well. By contrast, Jurgen Klopp, Maurizio Pochettino and Sean Dyche, that is a triumvirate of great men, uh, are it's, said to it's be... It's Dyche, by the way. <laughs> Dyche are said to be great man motivators whose teams always give complete effort. Who is correct? Who gets the blame or the credit for players' effort? Is it up to the manager to fire at the players or should players find motivation internally? Related to this, surely lack of effort can be a source of underachievement by teams with supposedly superior talent, just as greater effort can result in overachievement by sides with supposedly inferior talent. What about other aspects of team performance? Preparation, organisation, tactics. Might poor organisation or ineffective tactics lead players to withhold effort or more likely waste their effort? In this vein, Sari, Mourinho and Silva have been criticised for their stubborn refusal to change their tactics. Which came first? Their failure to motivate or their inappropriate tactics? When should players get the credit or blame when it comes to effort? Thank you for a very entertaining podcast, to which, somewhat pathetically, I look forward to each and every Wednesday. So then, Aaron, we ask this question. Should managers 
be motivators. Is this the fabled man management and can a boss be successful without it? Traditionally, a manager would manage, a coach would coach, but now is a head coach expected to man manage too? Aaron mentioned OGS, which we'll do quickly because we're very, very concerned about how we're pronouncing his name now, who has turned Manchester United around with apparently little more than a smile and a box of chocolates. But surely that on its own is not enough. So should managers be motivators and can they succeed if they're not. Now, Chinch, you've often spoken about the boss who turned your career around because of their man management and interpersonal skills. So how did Paul Jewell do it? Uh, Paul Jewell didn't do it because <laughs> he just scowled his way to uh, underperformance. Yeah, of course, coaches motivate. They motivate in very different ways as well. But I've always been a believer that players individually and collectively as a, a squad of players away from the coaching staff have to motivate themselves as well. And whether you have those senior figures in dressing rooms who take it upon themselves to say well yeah the coaching staff have had their say they've tried to motivate us in a certain way but then we as a group of players we, we are different because we're the players they're the coaching staff and that was very definitely the case you didn't want to through whatever the, the reasons were whether you're in and out of the team whether the formations were changing a lack of effort was was the, the biggest sin that players mm. looking at other players would say well hold on a minute I don't care what's happening between you and the manager you're alongside me today if you don't put a shift in I'm going to be coming for you. How would that lack of shift manifest? It didn't, because I always put a, a decent shift in. But, but uh, what, what, were you, what were you looking for? What, what would be the telltale signs of a player who wasn't trying? You can trying? You can Rory. But you're, looking, you're looking for 110. percent I just want to know what that looks like. Oh, right. Surely you, you must watch games and you can tell whether someone watching games alongside you clearly know what I need from you. I would never play alongside you because you're awful. But I, I would know if I was, hypothetically, <laughs> in upsetting. a parallel universe... <laughs> If we were to play alongside each other, God forbid, I would I would expect so, and I would know what your role. And you can you can just you know and you know it yourself, and you know it with the people that are around you. It's yeah. just in any sport in life, you can tell when whether people are kind of pulling their punches. A bit like you in this podcast, you can kind of tell when your heart's not completely in it, and you've got to pull your socks up. I would kick you up the backside. I would put an arm around your shoulder. I would do everything to motivate you to get the best out of you. But players. Whether it was just a generational thing, it was, that was very definitely the case. Players would have meetings. They'd, they'd go and sort mm. things out themselves because there was a, a professional pride there that we thought, well, whatever happens if the coaching staff changes, mm. we're still going to be here. And ultimately, it will be how we view this job and how we view ourselves as a team. Do the modern players still act in the same way? Do they see the senior players see themselves as... Those those people in the dressing room that can really affect how a team does it can't. Oh, they can't. It's an easy thing to say as well. It's all Sarri's fault. Oh, it's yeah. all the coach's fault. And but you can just tell by watching a performance, even in the first five minutes, whether players are at it or not. Yeah. And they have a huge responsibility. And of course, they take all the glory when things go well, and then they're brilliant. The coaches will pass all the glory on. But when things are going badly. I feel it's important the players to come out and say, yeah, we're, we're not happy as a bunch of players about how we're doing and take some of the pressure off the coach in return. But it was very definitely in that dressing room. I remember meeting after meeting. Obviously, when I played, we were teams I played in were so bad. There were regular meetings about how to sort things out, probably <laughs> one a week. Um, but it was. We took and we knew ourselves that it wasn't right and we took it upon ourselves to sort it out separately, strangely, separately from the coaches. We felt that we had that responsibility mm. to put it right for them because they were working as hard as they could for us. Even Paul Jewell? Not Paul Jewell. No, no, Paul Jewell. I, 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 again, no, Shall not we, Paul Jewell. We'll, we'll come to a slightly more serious consideration of, of Paul Jewell in just a moment. Will we? Or maybe at the end, to round is, things There is one, though, isn't there? There is, there is somewhere. There is I'll one give you somewhere. half an hour to think about okay. it. Okay. So does that mean, from what Chinch has just been saying, that the coach's personality could have a big influence on whether or not the players are willing to, to do anything about 
the poor on the form or to compensate mm-hmm. for perhaps the tactics that they don't feel are suitable because that seems to be maybe we can get on to, to Sari and Chelsea in a minute but to, to come back to the OGS and Manchester United thing it does feel as though simply there was a situation where the coach Jose Mourinho was trying to instill the tactics that he preferred on a set of players for whom that was not the right way for them to go about their business and it seems extraordinary to me that a coach, any coach at any level, would look at a situation where he's got 20, 25 players at his disposal who would prefer or be more suited to play in one way mm. and he would insist to enforce upon them his preferred methods. Surely the one individual should be the one to adapt rather than mm-hmm. trying to get 20 or footballers to, to do so to benefit him. That, that seems you extraordinary the, you to You can say the same about Sarri, can't you? Yeah, but the, the difference with Sarri is that Chelsea bought him in on the back. They were seduced Mm. by the style of football that he was playing at Napoli. They didn't bring him in on the back of his trophy success or a long, illustrious history of achieving things. It was look at the scintillating football his Napoli side have been playing over the last three seasons. So once you've made that decision, surely you've got to anticipate that the coach is going to try and get his new team to play in that way because he's got no track record of doing anything else and he's certainly not got the profile Mm. or the celebrity of Mourinho which was something that clearly attracted United to him at that point in time where they perhaps needed that that huge sort of footballing figure to come in and and try and do something different Mm. even if it wasn't quite the United way so I think the thing with Mourinho is is a really extreme example because I'm not sure that what Solskjaer's done is come in and and give like rousing speeches or, or tell all the players they're great. I think w- what Solskjaer's, and this isn't a, a, a criticism or a detraction of him at all, I think he's just not someone that most of the players kind of actively hate. And that's, yeah. Mourinho was kind of the, it, it, was so, it was bizarre to think about it, it was such an extreme example, but Mourinho was actively a, like a drag on their performance because they they felt continually betrayed by him because he kept coming out and criticising him in public. He was, by all accounts, fairly kind of random in, in how he was, slightly arbitrary in how he was criticising them in private. The He was doing things that were the big gestures of saying, Pogba will never captain my team again and selling players out in front of each other. The squad was just operating under a cloud. And I think what Solskjaer's come in and done is just be a normal bloke, to be perfectly honest. He's clearly a good coach. Tactically, he's very bright. He's he's taken really good resources at Manchester United and turned them into a really really good team which is what they should have been this is just about the level United should have been at anyway um, so he's, that means he's a good coach but I don't think it's a triumph of motivation because because it's more it's more I guess proof of the dangers of anti-motivation if you see what I mean how much a negative atmosphere between a manager and, a, and the players can affect results and I do I kind of react badly I, I what's the word I shy, yeah. I bridle a little bit at the idea that managers, when managers are, de- are, are described just as motivators, so Klopp is the best example, because there's a lot of other managers who think that all Klopp does is give people big hoods and, and pump his chest and all this. There's a lot of managers who think that all Zidane did was clap whenever a Real Madrid player did something good, because because that's what they, they saw him doing. And I... I I think within football, when we talk about motivators, we tend to use it kind of as a criticism. It's it's a shorthand for not actually that tactically astute or doesn't play brilliant football or 
isn't that rabble rouser? They isn't actually that bowling. bright? Yeah, there the players are all run through walls. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's so, yeah. in in the kind of we're all modern, we're all sophisticates yeah. now in the, in the modern football world. Even Hugh, James, ah, even Hugh, in the modern football <laughs> world, what what owners are looking for, what fans want, what journalists like, what all these people who are kind of dependent on the managers and the players, what we want is someone who's got ideas and vision and you know is talking about. Oh, I'm going to play a low block here and then trap them and, and do this, this, and this, and my counter press will be fantastic. And we, when we talk about motivators, it tends to be as a kind of He's a bit old school. He's not that, the, the, as though it's sort of fraudulent in some ways. Though it's just a kind of matter of shouting and screaming and building everybody up and, and riding the emotion. And I think that really that that underplays what pretty much all of those managers do. Is, is Sean Dyche seen in that? A little, a little bit. And yeah. Dyche is an interesting example because Dyche does it to himself, okay. which I think is a point we've made before, haven't we? My long, my long and uh, storied <laughs> history of kind of psychoanalyzing Sean Dyche. Mm. I think Sean Dyche presents himself as a motivator, and I think that he, by doing so, he sells himself massively short. Because yeah. he's not just no, a motivator. He's a good yeah, coach. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had an email um, following on from our um, conversation about the January transfer window about the Nathaniel Klein deal, where he went to Bournemouth and he could have gone to Cardiff, and Neil Warnock mm-hmm. thought that he was going to Cardiff, and as a result, uh, Rory, rather flippantly and not at all seriously, said uh, that deal was also good because it annoyed Neil Warnock. Uh, Mark Wilcoxon got in touch to say... Uh, when listening to that show, I noticed a comment about annoying Neil Warnock. As a Sheffield United fan, I have a very romantic view towards Warnock while understanding the argument against style of football, etc. I wonder what your take-up was on the whole view of Warnock within the football sphere and why there is almost a universal hatred uh, towards him. Uh, probably he's put universal hatred in um, speech marks and, and perhaps it's not quite that bad. But the reason I bring that up is because he's another example of a manager who has had continuing success... And yet he seems to be never considered to be a great manager more than his ability to shout and scream and to be a man motivator. Is is that do we paint somebody who is considered to be a man, a, a, a man manager ahead of everything else and not very much else? Do we paint them in a negative light because we don't think that that is a valued? We paint them in, in a negative light because saying they're a man manager is a shorthand for not investigating further what they're doing it's it becomes a very easy it's the same as when people talk about Klopp say and say heavy metal football which is a signifier that you have not got the faintest clue about what Jurgen Klopp is trying to do there is this these things kind of stick to people and are used as a way of excusing ignorance or disguising ignorance. It's so, like lazy stereotypes that like we talked about players about three or four Yeah, to an extent, yeah. It's derogatory yeah. as well. They're basically trying to say, well, that, that's all he is. Yeah, that's, that's all he is. Yeah. He's just a man manager. And I, I, I mean, Chinch will know differently. But, but I probably will. I think there are, there are lots of different types of managers. Some are more tacticians. Some, someone like Tom, Thomas Tuttle, I think, is, is, is very much a tactician. I, I don't think Tuttle is a great big sort of speech giver. I think Klopp does create an atmosphere around players and the players do have a loyalty to him and an affection for him which is really important same with Pochettino but I think at the same time they all do lots of different things so so just as you can probably create you can probably motivate players by being really clever with your tactics and very quiet you don't have to be a shouter to be to be motivating because the players will think you know it's great playing for this guy because he 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 does all these brilliant things we're winning loads of games and I really enjoy my football you can motivate players by be nice to them. You can motivate players by not being nice to them. There's lots and lots of different ways of doing it. And I think most managers to, who get to the top have to have some of everything in their, in their makeup. And in, in, in answer to that question, I genuinely don't quite get why Neil Warnock is hated so much in football because, although he's not a brilliant person, 
I've interviewed him a couple of times. I quite, he's really nice in in private. He is delightful. He's a he's good company. I don't understand that he's he's probably horrible to play against, but that is not unique in football. And it, it, I find it genuinely baffling why he's so unpopular. One possible theory is that is the has the shtick got a little bit exhausting? That thing of it's us against the world, and that being sold from basically day one. You know that that we sort of warn it yeah, specifically. Yeah, talking Yeah, you know that thing about you know everyone hates us and we don't it's care. It's worked for him over what it one has, and a half thousand games, Steve. So has, can you understand but, that maybe that's why he perpetuates it? Yeah, I'll, yeah. yeah. I'm not. This is not a criticism yeah. of him for perpetuating it. I'm just offering an explanation for why he might not be universally popular, especially amongst supporters of basically everyone other than the team he's a manager of, because. It, it just gets trotted out all the time, literally from the day he takes over to the day he leaves. And maybe people just, it's just a bit exhausting. Doesn't everybody do that? Yeah, pretty much. Everyone. For, for, for yeah. one of Ferguson's top three things was doing that. Even Klopp's been doing the it. The siege like. mentality, the, the way that everyone, Guardiola's been doing it. Guardiola. Mm. Particularly in the first year, Guardiola did it when things weren't going but well. Re- even recently, when they, lost at, when they lost at Newcastle, Guardiola came out and said, oh, everyone thought, oh, just before one of their runs of form, Guardiola came out and said, oh, everyone thought we'd lost the lead. And you think, I mean, I've, I've genuinely not seen that written or said anywhere. And Guardiola is clearly people didn't people didn't trust us. And you think, well, where are you, Pep? Where are you getting this stuff from? It's complete nonsense. This is a club, and we know that I'm affectionate towards Manchester City. This is a club that has, to a large extent, got away with bending the rules, claiming that they are in some way victimised by by the footballing establishment. It is ridiculous, and it just seems to be this knee-jerk reaction that everyone in football now believes that. Everyone is against them, and they're not. And they're, I'd, I'd love to know what bits of like media criticism they're all using as, as evidence. I mean, well, you've spoken about that before. Is the more you're in the media, the more you see criticism because even, you are covered more, and every little yeah, word yeah. that the manager says will be raked over in a way that it perhaps wasn't before because the managers didn't have a command of England English yeah. that even Guardiola does. But even Warnock, like how much negative stuff you seen about Warnock this year? I've seen none. All I've seen is that Warnock has been has done a brilliant job to get Cardiff promoted, that he seems really relaxed because there was the impression that there was a realisation that if they stay up, it's a massive bonus. And then when they started winning games, they weren't expected to be winning. People saying, this is brilliant, aren't Cardiff doing well? I've not seen any criticism of Cardiff whatsoever. And the way that the club and he handled the Emiliano Sala thing yeah, was, was, was obviously particularly... Um, uh, until uh, the payment argument. Yes, but all I mean is from Warnock's point of view, kind of a window into his soul in a way that perhaps we hadn't seen It was before. a glimpse of him as a as a... It was a glimpse of the person you see when you when you sit down with Neil yes, Warnock, who is very different. Kind of he's very different to the caricature of Warnock, and I'm, I'm not denying that, that that belligerent side exists. I just I don't think it's particularly rare in football that he's an unpleasant person to play against. Different t- types of motivation. I think what really struck me when Joe Royal and Willie Johnny came to Everton and the effect they had on myself and the squad there was honesty. Was basically saying to the players, quietly and calmly, you're capable of this. It's mm. over to you. We'll help you in any way that we can. We're not going to shout. We're not going to put an arm. We're going to say, it's up to you. Honesty. We'll tell you when you're good. We'll tell you when you're bad. You've got to start appreciating that yourself. So empowerment. you pass the empowerment. You pass the responsibility on. And that worked across the board. But we had a lot of players at Everton that I would consider far more rounded footballers and people like Barry Horn and Neville Southall, Dave Watson, who were to me, I didn't see myself in the same light as that. But what I was being challenged to be was to be like that, to think about yourself and to think about the people around you, your responsibilities. Don't be self-centered. You can be this, but this is how you can benefit everybody. So that honesty, the first time I'd really come across it, being told actually, 
you're not good enough, you're not doing well enough, you need to do this, you need to improve. And then passing it on to you and mm. saying, we'll work with you, we'll do as many sessions as you, as you need, but do you want to do it? And that, that to me made all the difference because it was, it was down to me understanding what was needed, not expecting someone else to provide it for me. And that again, that's that's motivation. People say, "Well, that's surely it's about tactics. It's about you know shouting or the no, it isn't. It's actually passing the responsibility and empowerment onto the player and saying it's it's all over, over over to you now." But also, if you create a genuine bond between player and management staff, that allows you to be both positive and yeah. negative because mm-hmm. the negative means something because you've created that mm-hmm. bond. The old story about Fergie is that Fergie would be lovely to his players throughout the week, so that they felt completely valued by him. And then if they messed up on a weekend, they knew. That they were about to get the famous the famous hairdryer, mm-hmm. not because they were scared necessarily of the hairdryer, but because they didn't want to let him down. down exactly, because it's that trust that you build. A bond. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that Oligan Solskjaer has done since returning to Manchester United is is basically setting up those different boundaries where he is as pleasant to them as a human being should mm. be to any other human, particularly if they're in your employ. Um, but also he has needed to and has dished out. Um, a shellacking if it uh, needs to be. Well, so is it, what we're kind of dancing around a little bit is that the key element of all motivation, whatever form that takes, whether that's through your tactics or through your through your speeches or through pinning up articles from a newspaper that you've written yourself and pretending there's a siege mentality against you or whatever, is trust. The players have to trust you as a manager. They have to have in, There has to be something about you and your staff that the playing squad trusts that you are doing the best for them because it's the best for you and that those two things and the best for the club, those three things are all intertwined and they are one and the same. So the players have to feel that you that you have their back and that their best interest, that your best interests are their best interests and vice versa. And I think that the counter example is what happened with Mourinho, where the players, that's the basic issue. The players did not trust that what he was doing it's was also, the best interest of you. them. It's completely separate. Yeah. The players yeah, started together. to feel yeah. that what he was doing was what was best for him, mm. not what was best for them and what was best for the club. So that they they were being dropped, they were being embarrassed, they were being publicly criticised. They didn't. There was no part of them that thought, Do you know what, this guy has shown me in whatever way that that I can trust him, that he is doing this for a reason. So there's this famous story about Di Maria at Real Madrid who was who was criticised in public by Mourinho when Mourinho was there, George Mendes' manager, George Mendes' player. Di Maria got warned it was going to happen and was told he was being made an example of, not to take it personally, that it's just that this is, this is a thing that, that Jose's going to do and it shows that he's got this power or whatever and he's not prepared to tolerate shirters or whatever because it, it was known that Mourinho and Di Maria, Di Maria were close so the feeling was that if he criticised Di, Di Maria in public then no one was safe sort of thing. So Di Maria got warned and didn't mind because he trusted Mourinho then to to do the right thing for him and the team and everybody. At United, that didn't happen. The difference at Manchester City is the players have total faith in Guardiola's methods. I'm not 100%, I don't know. I'd be surprised if they all like him. So I think Pep's probably not a particularly pleasant person to work for because he's very demanding. But they certainly trust him implicitly that what he's doing is right. At Liverpool, I think the players trust Klopp to have their best interests at heart and to make whatever changes he needs. Or the, I think at Liverpool, if you look at the way that um, that new signings are bedded in, it suggests that there is a trust from, from both from above Klopp and below Klopp, the players, that they that he is doing the right thing by them. So you had Oxley Chamberlain and Robertson last year, Fabinho and to an extent Cater this year and Shakiri. Yeah. The slow start 
there is a trust with Klopp straight away, and I would guess it's to do with honesty, that he is telling them this is what's going to happen, that he has a plan. Same with Pochettino at Spurs, that the, the squad trust that he can bring young players in rather than signing players, and that he knows what he's doing. There is that trust. So motivation, I think, is probably a, a slightly inaccurate synonym for trust in the manager. And as we've discussed previously, the idea of having the right manager for the right club with the right set of players, it's the, it's the combination that, that breeds success. You know, Surely that was a factor behind what Zidane achieved at, at Real Madrid because you know, there wasn't necessarily evidence of him being a great tactician, but what there was evidence of his ability to get the best out of the players and they clearly trusted him that he would make the right decisions about who was playing when and what approach they were going to take and that... You know, and obviously success, you know, contributes massively towards that in terms of well, clearly something's going right because we we won the European Cup and then oh, we won it again and, and subsequently for a third successive season. And I wonder whether there are parallels with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at, at United that simply he understands what the club expects, he understands what the fans expect, and he understands that if he ha- if he gets the players to do what they are most naturally brilliant at. Mm-hmm. it's likely to contribute more often than not to winning rather than trying to to rally against what seems to be you know just do the obvious thing sometimes yeah, yeah you, it doesn't it doesn't have to be complicated i think the thing that stood out with Zidane whenever we talk about managers now it's always about their their vision their ideas their philosophy whatever the thing that stood out with with Zidane his substitutions were always really good mm. His substitutions made a difference. And obviously, if you're bringing on Marco Asensio or Isco or whatever, there's, there's half a chance, just they're pretty good players. But he seemed to get the timing right. He seemed to make the, the little tactical shifts were always right. Bale came on as a substitute in the Champions League final yeah. in 2018, yes. didn't he? And scored twice. Mm. One of them a brilliant goal, the other, Loris Carrius. <laughs> and, um, Assist, Carrius. Uh, um, uh, that must build up trust. That must, yeah. fr- from a player's point of view, if you think that the manager know, has that feel of the game, with, it, with Zidane it seemed to be really instinctive. If you trust that the manager has that feel for the game, that he can just change it, just bend it a little bit yeah. in terms of how he wants it to go, you will trust his decisions. You will trust, as you, as you say, that he's picking the right players. He's, he's doing the right yeah. things. And I always think, you never ever see, whenever people, and I, I, will, I do it a million times, but whenever journalists go and write about the latest sort of br- bright, young manager or the BBC go and do a sort of feature on this, you know, this guy's great philosophy. No one ever says, the thing about him is his, his substitutions are really good. It's always, it's, it's always much bigger ideas, but then substitutions are, I mean, that's basically the most d- like direct impact a manager can have that's on a football match. the floor of a game and actually yeah. that has arguably the biggest impact yeah. changing it. If you're really good at substitutions. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the... Really yeah. about. And funnily enough, yeah. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was, was a brilliant substitute yeah. because he was following the pattern of the game yeah, yeah. when he was on the bench and that was why Fergie always said yes. that he would be the best manager of his players and so surely he should be able to translate if that's innate as it appeared to be uh, then clearly he's going to be able to, to apply that as a manager as well. Because yeah, that was always the thing that struck me as the most incredible about Mourinho was you know, and I'm not saying you know, pl- player power is obviously something that needs to be controlled. You can't you can't let the players run free. But why you'd have players like Rashford and Martial and try and stifle their natural enthusiasm and their like a battle instinct. of wits, as if to say, yeah. I know what you are and I know how good you are, but I'm not going to allow you to do that. It yeah. became a battle of wits, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Getting... or just no bloody mindedness, yeah. maybe. Rather than looking at going, what aren't these brilliant weapons I've got to my disposal? Let's see how we we can use those in the best possible way. It's like he wanted them to fail. It was yeah. kind of really, stri- but oh, again, it's going to backfire on you because you're the one that's going to get the bullet in the. So I don't understand. Surely you must be getting the best out of them. Makes you look good. 
it's just strange, just really odd. And obviously Pogba as well. I mean, I'm not team Pogba, you know, and I'm sure he could have been doing better than he was under the circumstances. But if you've been signed for 90 plus million pounds and you're earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a week and then the manager is asking you to do a job that you are not necessarily most suitable for, you can understand why that would demotivate you. It doesn't explain why you're not playing absolutely at your best out of position. But it does explain, well, hang on a second, what am I doing here? Yeah, but again, what it seems the- to be, why Why are you playing him there? Because yeah. you, everybody knows, I'm no coach, even though Neville Southall says clearly I am. Everyone knows that that's not Pogba's best. So is he doing it again to show who's boss? Yeah, yeah. Even at the cost of Pogba playing badly, the team losing. Coming I'm still making that point. decision. Yeah. Podber didn't trust that what Mourinho was doing was in his interest. And that's where it, it all breaks down. It wasn't. It was, it, was, it was Mourinho wasn't. making a point. Yeah. The, the, the other parallel, and it's, it's a much more positive one, I suppose, is with Sarri. So do the Chelsea players. I, I was at the City-Chelsea game. And this is going to sound really stupid. And I actually shied away from saying it on the radio, which I did the night after the City-Chelsea game. I don't think Chelsea weren't trying. There was a lot of the analysis was, well, Chelsea have thrown in the towel. They weren't interested. They weren't bothered. From what I could see, you had one or two players who looked pretty disheartened. They were 4-0 down after 24 minutes. They were probably disheartened. But Hazard kept working. Higuain yeah. kept working. They had their best period after Pedro- going 4-0 down. First, in the first half, Chelsea actually looked weirdly like scoring, despite being 4-0 down. You sort of thought, actually, do you know what? Every time Chelsea go forward, they looked quite dangerous. Yeah, yeah they did. And Pep yeah. was getting yeah. furious. Yeah, yeah. Pep was getting Pep, really annoyed. Pep was not happy yeah. with the way that City were defending. But I thought the front three all worked hard. I thought Jorginho kept doing what he was trying to do. Kante, obviously, is, doesn't, Kante is not the sort of player who's going to become demoralised and not work. I think you could maybe look at Marcus Alonso and, and say he's maybe not making the runs that he should be making, but the, you know the central defence kept on, Rudiger and David Luiz kept on trying. I agree. It yeah. wasn't a failure of, of effort. It was a failure of trust in what they were meant to be doing. They didn't trust. They, they looked to me like a squad that does not believe that Sarri's methods work. And that's the problem. It's not that he can't motivate... It's not that they don't like him or that they think he's terrible, or that they think we want to get rid of him so we're not going to run around, which is the way we analyse everything. Because in England particularly, we're obsessed with with motivation and, and big tub-thumping speeches and, and men being men and, and sort of getting people to, you know, cry havoc and let slip the dodge of war and England, Harry and St George and all that business. <laughs> And I don't know Shakespeare. I don't like Shakespeare. Dogs of War obviously were let slip in 1995. I want to go out and storm the local deli now. You've really fired me up. But we're obsessed with that side of management because because it's a lot easier than talking about tactics and it's not as boring. Um, Because it's simpler. It's simpler. We understand that. It speaks to, if you actually look through British history, that's how we kind of interpret everything. It's always, we, we have a kind of like a hero culture where we have to find someone... Like to in Brexit, we survived the war so we can survive yeah, Brexit. Yeah, that whole nonsense. That, that exactly loads of people who didn't survive the war. Also, a lot of people died in the war, lads. That's kind of the point of the war. Yes, we don't want people to die this yeah. time around, but apparently the, the We the, the survived Brexit. Okay. Millions didn't. <laughs> survive, sorry, we, we survived the war. Millions didn't, anyway. the I think we, we do tend to boil things down too much into whether kind of... Do they like him? Do they it, this soap opera style of football? With Sarri, I think they like him, and I think they get that they're working for him and they're trying. But I think at the same time there is a little bit of them that doesn't quite believe it's going to work, and that's the problem. That's where the faith has gone. It's not that he can't motivate them; it's that they don't quite trust his method. Yeah, the situation regarding you know at the time of speaking, Sarri at Chelsea feels the fault of management, but not the fault of the the football manager. Mm. It, it, 
it, it doesn't feel at the moment like he was the right appointment for a club. And I know you wrote an article about this last week, mm. Rory, and it, and it would be an interesting discussion for us to have about whether sort of the boom-bust cycle thing is no longer going to work because the top clubs are so well organised that it will be difficult to, to make those leaps upwards and then build again from sort of fifth or sixth place. But that, that Chelsea have become a victim of that pattern that they have established in terms of that the weight of responsibility rests solely on the, the the shoulders of the head coach. You know, player recruitment never comes under scrutiny. Uh, board, not, nothing, you know, boardroom level seems mm. to come under a great deal of scrutiny. And certainly the players don't seem to be judged by whether they're succeeding or failing with Chelsea. That all seems to stay the same. It's only the coach who ever mm. changes. Yeah. And the, the, the problem for, for Sarri is even if they do understand what he's trying to do, the fact that they aren't able to implement it still results in all the pressure being on that one man yeah. because that's the most changeable component. And it, it just seems like a bit of an, an unfortunate coming together of circumstances. So maybe the problem with Chelsea is that they don't, the players don't necessarily feel the need to be, to be motivated yeah. because they know, that they know how this cycle all ends. They know what, they've been through this before. Yeah. There, there comes a point where things are going against Chelsea where the players just I guess trying to switch off a little bit and it, th- with all this stuff it's it's one percent it's not mm. that they're walking around it's they're not quite making that final sprint quite as quickly as they would do if they were absolutely 100% it's tiny margins that and you get beaten 6-0 that's all it's it even is in that City game they actually started the game on the front foot and tried to prep a City first four the minutes problem is, yes, the problem is City was so good and they stretched the game and passed the ball around them and they were t- they c- couldn't get close mm. what was more damning was probably the 4 nil defeat at Bournemouth yeah. I- I'd be looking at that and saying well hold on a minute losing 6-0 to City lots of teams have conceded a lot of goals because City are that good no matter what you do losing 4-0 at Bournemouth no disrespect to but that would I don't know yeah. the manner of that I didn't see that game was all four goals in one half was the manner of that defeat again was there with the criticisms about lack of motivation lack of it, intensity every in time something well? goes wrong for one of the big teams the first port of call is he Plays can't motivate them yeah. although yeah. part of the criticism after the Bournemouth game is that Eddie Howe figured out how Sarri was going to play because everybody knows how Sarri is going to yeah. play so yeah, yeah. He, he countered that and he did it very successfully and Sarri wasn't able to then uh, change was there the more, what was trying was playing the, so, the so Chelsea there was a tactical, there was yeah. a tactical yeah. discussion yeah. at least after that certainly against City I didn't feel that the down tools and they just weren't trying even at 4-5 down they looked to me as if and they had a period in the game in the first half where they were really going at it you're right Pep wasn't happy at all so you can't then say oh they've just they've just mm. given it up here they're clearly not playing for him I, I don't believe that at so, all so, so we've been speaking about the fact that it's it's part, part, part of motivation is is trust and, and those players understanding that the manager's interests are in the best interest of the players <coughs> as well but there, there have been examples kind of wild examples of varying levels of um relationships that players have with the managers because of the way that the managers are. So, for example, the, the criticism always levelled at Svenja and Eriksson that he w- he ran a completely too permissive uh, atmosphere. He wanted to be their friends. He he mm. wanted to, to create that, uh, that element of a relationship that was, w- whether it was trust or not, because you hear stories about the fact they didn't necessarily trust uh, the way that he was managing, but he was trying to fashion a relationship between those players and hope that that would then engender some success results and clearly for him in a lot of places it was. The very opposite of that was um, Roberto Mancini at, at Manchester City and I'm, I'm assuming elsewhere too um, where he did not even try to create any sort of relationship. Mark Hughes is similar. Mark Hughes well, had a he, similar type of style of management as well, that kind of hands off. Yes, yeah, you, you essentially yeah. say I'm here to be a manager or yeah. a coach. I go into work, I do my work and then I leave. Mm. I don't talk to you about your life. I don't care about mm. your life. I'm, I'm not trying to be your friend. So one, That's one, how Hugh runs this podcast. Yes, it? very yeah. much indeed. So shut up. <laughs> uh, so one at one end of the scale, you've got Sven, Sven Eriksson, who's trying 
to be your friend maybe too much. And then you've got Roberto Mancini at one end who's not trying at all. And yet both have been successful. So there are elements of, for example, Mancini that you, you don't have to be a man manager at all. Yeah. And but they managed to, in incredible circumstances, win a Premier League title. So that is the players self-motivating is it or having enough trust that even though Mancini doesn't care about them or, they all care about the same thing yeah, and so exactly. they are prepared or to that style works for certain players the Svenjorn Eriksson yeah. style will work for certain players as well and that's why maybe coaches have to have a cross section because the people that they're dealing with are people mm. who will respond in different ways some people would just want that kind of impersonal relationship others will want coaches to get to know them because that's just how they are as people so coaches have to learn the people that they're coaching which brings me on to Paul Jewell yeah so was there anything about any of the managers that we've spoken about over the last half an hour or so that he had any aspect of he must and he might have combined them appallingly but did what were his his things if he had anything I I only saw him at a certain period of his managerial career he had was it where was he most successful Bradford, Bradford. and Wigan Bradford. and again his style of management did not appeal to me and a lot of other players in in any way at all but it maybe appealed to certain other players and that's why I'm saying there is there has to however a coach goes about it however he does it will he will get the best out of somebody mm. But it's surely a coach has to do. And Danny Wilson was very keen on having his own coaching style assessed, and presumably he's doing it from the point of view: well, just doing it one way will not work for everybody. Mm. And he was then working with psychologists to try and develop his own coaching style, maybe to try and work out different people and work out different methods of of getting the best out of different people. If you just have one way, yes, it might two or three might really connect with you and it might work really well. But a lot of other people will find it impossible or mm. just think you don't know what you're doing and once you loop people talk about losing a dressing room that's where it tends to come from is that they don't get on or they don't understand the manager's methods or coach's methods and then once senior players start again that lack of trust lack of faith that spreads around a dressing room you're absolutely dead in the water so I think at the time what I'd been through the coaches I'd, I'd enjoyed working with Glenn Hoddle again was a coach but also very personable as well he would talk to you one-on-one he could work a group of people really well. He, he did a bit of everything. But when teams were picked or the way we were playing or things weren't working, he'd say so. Joe Royal would do the same thing. I feel I saw the, the best. They weren't the best coaches that have, have ever been, clearly not. But I, I felt they had a bit of everything which made them more rounded, better coaches where they could go into any environment and probably be fairly successful. If you're rigid and just have one way of working, just shouting at people or making people feel really uncomfortable, that, that eventually you're going to fall flat because mm. it's just eventually the players certain players will, will turn the back on you the big clubs if those players turn their back on you there's nowhere to go so you have to be adaptable and you have to coach in a variety of ways I'd seen that with other good coaches so then when I worked with Paul again he'd been through certain things as well so maybe I don't know whether he, he coached or managed any differently when he was at Sheffield Wednesday I just felt and it wasn't just me it's the way that he dealt with the younger players as well, which really annoyed me more than because I knew what it was like as a young player to be at Man City with Billy McNeil, who were, was a kind of a tyrant, that big, mm. powerful figure. I was terrified of him. And I thought, how can you get the best, how can a young player develop if he's terrified, genuinely terrified of the coach he's working for? And I felt that was happening. Paul Jewell tried to dominate everybody, but certainly dominate the younger players because he probably could do that. With Des Walker, Kevin Pressman, myself, he's probably not because we've been through the mill and we've seen other coaches. And I'd always say, well, you, you know, you, you compare you to Joe Royal and there is no comparison. And But with younger players, they don't know any different. This is all new to them. 
And that's why I was that that annoyed me more than anything else was that kind of dominance and beating down of very good players, young players, that needed the balance. Yes, they needed maybe to be told what wasn't right, but they needed help as well. They needed understanding and trust and they didn't get that. But you had Howard Kendall as well, who was all about creating a relationship with his players by essentially drinking yeah, with yeah. them. So that, that yeah. was the, the complete opposite. But you didn't you didn't enjoy that because you felt like you were being railroaded into being somebody that you weren't. Absolutely. So, absolutely so there, was, again, yes. there's the, yeah. the elements of being the but draconian up, boss who yeah. shouts at people, but also at the other side of things, the being the overly familiar boss who's trying to be one of the lads, and and it doesn't necessarily mean that that, that either work. Just very finely, Chinch, because you've got an appointment in Manchester. Steve's mm-hmm. got an appointment in London. We've yep. got a soccer story to come in just a moment. But can you admit to ever displaying a lack of effort because of the relationship broke de- breakdown? I'd certainly, I'd certainly hope not. And I had the opportunity was there with my relationship with Howard, my relationship with Paul Jewell. So I remember actually when I was I was injured for. Um, quite a while which I, I was throughout my career but for about I'd had kind of two or three weeks off with an Achilles problem I'd been sent away Paul Jewell didn't want me in the training ground so I was sent off to Lillishall to do my rehab there and then there came a point where I was getting myself back to virtually full fitness and they needed me to play as a game at Watford uh, for Sheffield Wednesday and basically got the, the physio to ring me and say you're travelling you're going to be playing at Watford he got the physio to do it he didn't ring me himself so again at that point I could have said you know what, you basically ostracised. There's no way I'm playing for you. But I did. I came back and was instrumental in the 3-1 win. Um, I'm not, no, I did that. That genuinely did happen. Is, the, is I was this the instru- thought after I was, the F no. off in the snow? This was, this was, was this, I, I don't know who did that. Andy Booth. What was he thinking? Anyway, but that, at that point, I could easily have just said, you know what, the way you've treated me. But I, again, that's when it's about the other players. It's about you as a person saying, this is my profession. It's about me, this. It's not about you. You carry on how you want to do it. I'm not going to, be as petty as that. Andy Booth right in the snow maybe tells a different story. But um, but again, yes, Howard Kendall, Paul Jewell, I could. And maybe you think back and think, oh, I was always, I always did the right thing. Maybe I didn't completely. But that was one instance where I could easily have said to the physio, you know what, I'm feeling a little bit under the or something and, and not play. But I came back, I, tra- I wasn't fully fit. I was instrumental. And I gave the best that I could for the team, despite the way the manager treated you. Well, then, as promised, then, before we go, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy tells a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. OK, now, there's many questions <laughs> surrounding my hugely successful football career. I don't want you to ask me questions. How did it happen? First question. <laughs> How did you get away Can I it? really open a can of beans with my left foot? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. I'm just going to leave it in the ether. Brilliant. This is going to be next. How Q&A. much more of a spectacle would the World Cup 1998 have been with my participation. Clearly much better. Didn't make it. That's It's, it's frustrated football fans around the globe. That I, yeah, I, I know I this for, I know for a fact. Should no, don't, don't put it. We have left I know this for a fact. Well. Which bit of the bench would you have sat on, do you think? Um, would I have made the bench? Yes. Would I have made the yes. bench? Well, everybody, everybody well, ev- makes the bench. Even though they're never going to kick a ball. Yeah, full squad on the bench. How do you think you would have reacted to that ingenious free kick that Argentina put? England very well very from well, the bench probably. very well I, would me, you have applauded I probably would have stopped that I probably would have stopped that but we'd never know again this is it's such a huge question <laughs> and we talk about sliding doors what would have happened that's a big question yeah. um, but probably the biggest question I get asked on the, the mean streets of Woodford is Chinch clearly you're, you're changing the face of, of modern broadcasting we all know that that's, that's taken <laughs> as read um, but this is, this is about my own face and why are you never clean shaven? You've, all the time you've known me, you've, you've, Hugh, you've, can you remember me being clean shaven? Nope, you've dropped a hammer on us there, Chinch. It surprised you there, haven't I? 
I like wine. Why are you never clean? Um, why are you never clean shaven? This is this is the whole point of the soccer story. Why chinch? Why oh why oh why? Because you're such a gorgeous man. Surely take off the stubble, you'd be even more attractive. The problem was I did a photo shoot. I didn't do many photo shoots in my career. Have I mentioned Kronos? Yes, yes, you have. yes I have, haven't I? I did I've forgotten, a photo I've forgotten shoot. the name, but I remember the story. Yes, I Your did. Gold a, boots. I did it. My gold boots, the yeah. photo shot, uh, shoot for my gold boots. Now, for some reason, I thought, well, I, I should have a shave because they're going to be taking lots of photographs of me kissing a golden boot. Mm. And for some reason, I thought, well, why? but why on oh, that occasion did I decide to shave? I did. Little did I know, underneath the stubble, there was a spot. <laughs> so as I shaved... Nicked the spot. Oh, no. I had a ludicrous big red blob upon my face for that photo shoot. And a lot of people remember me for that, sadly. Not for the, the brilliance of my left foot or the, all the goals I created or the influence I've had over football, both on and off the pitch. They remember me for this big spot on my... And I remember me <laughs> for this big Chinch. spot on my face. I and from that point onwards, I said, don't do this again. Never, ever pick up a razor. I don't want to to disabuse you of, of any notions. Mm. But I think you are wildly overestimating the success of that Kronos marketing <laughs> campaign. It didn't, uh, didn't get down particularly well. I, I don't think anyone noticed it. G- putting it in good housekeeping. Who's gonna, what's the point in that? <laughs> I mean, I, I remember it appearing in the pages of Cheshire Life, but I'm not sure. But me, ha- you know, me with a big a face, a clean-shaven face, big spot, kissing a golden boot. It was a little bit hot in the dressing room at, uh, at uh, Goodison Park as well, so I was flushed. Mm. I was lob- lobsterish. Mm. It was just a perfect storm. I'm, I haven't got a face for, for TV or pictures. Have given, I? given given all of it, that information, why did, you, why did you blow it up into an A1 poster and put it on your bedroom wall? I did not do that. You did that, <laughs> and then you threw darts at it. So that is why, from that Going point onwards, I went with the George Michael, Jason Statham swarthy look, which Steve has followed, Rory has followed, Hugh as best he can has followed I, I've set a trend there but that was the defining moment in my facial fuzz would you say George Michael Jason Statham <laughs> yeah. would I say George Michael Jason Statham as what I would say more George from Rainbow <laughs> and hang on, Jason hang on. <laughs> Jason I'm going to Jason Orange the problem is, is that uh, that makes one of us zippy and another bungle <laughs> well we know who's bungle <laughs> which one of us is the guy run, running the show what was, what was he called? I think Jeffrey. Was Bungle released back into the wild or was he? <laughs> he was forced to perform on TV. We leave you with a reminder of how to get in touch with the podcast at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com, facebook.com forward slash setpiecemenu. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory and Andy and to the collective members of the Rainbow Cast. Uh, thank you to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Are you just looking at? No, I just trying to get. The, I have to. We have to. This is appalling. Why would I? Why we would I? Don't need the phone. It's indelibly marked. Have you, have you not right. seen? Have you not seen the pictures? I, no, I have, have seen. Have it, you yeah, seen yeah, them, yeah, Steve? Yeah. They're appalling, yeah, yeah. aren't they? Chinch, I'm going to guarantee that Andy Hinchcliffe Kronos does bring, does does not bring right. up any doodle right. results. No, no. If well, you if you Google Andy Hinchcliffe on Google Images, it's one of the first ones that comes up. How often do you do that? All the time. All the time. It's a very useful resource for pictures of him with or without facial hair. Is that for your scrapbook? No, that, that's because unfortunately I'm, I'm, in, I'm in charge summer. of social media, uh, Rory, so I have to look up these things occasionally. Uh, All right. No, how many, how many? <laughs> Sorry, that was a serious response. <laughs> Go on Wikipedia. Andrew George Hinchcliffe is an English, an English former professional footballer who had a big spot on his face for a Kronos photo shoot. That's the first line. Yeah, well, that's what you remembered for. Look at that. No, it, I, I can, even I, you know I'm not I'm not into that at all, am I? Not uh, into that at all. But nice boots, eh? You don't look like where's the spot? 
it's covered by the they've, boot. They've airbrushed it. It's covered by the boot. I don't think airbrushing existed when they had that when that photo was taken. Apparently not makeup either. No.